0: Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all
1: get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Well, well, welcome back, Dress
0: listeners. Yay! (laughs) And I say welcome back because it's been a couple of months since we have been here in real life recording in the studio. We were taking a break, of course, from making new content during our annual winter hiatus. So um, during that time span, we have been re-airing some of our favorite episodes from the Dressed closet of past shows. But today is our first brand new episode of
1: Season 7 of Dressed. Which every time we talk about it, April, I am just in awe of us. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, (laughs) wow, we have been doing this for six, like six seasons, right? We have six seasons, 450 plus episodes, dress listeners. And some of you are new to the show. We always get people saying they're new and it's like, oh, you have a lot to catch up on, but Mm -hmm. have fun. And we actually reached a really big milestone this last year because we had 20 million downloads of the show. That's amazing. I didn't even know that. So thank you for blowing my mind just now. (laughs) And dress listeners, thank you really from the bottom of our hearts, because we could not do this show without you. And it's because of you that this show is a success. And because of you that April and I get to do what we love. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, for sure. And we are also exceptionally excited to not only launch our new season today, but I'm sure many of you may be aware that this year is what we are calling so much more in 2024. We <laughs>
0: I couldn't so, help myself.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> we have so much up our sleeves this year, starting with the fact that we have officially launched Dress the School of Fashion with our very first online courses. Yes, Cass,
0: part one of your first class, What Women Wore to the Revolution, 100-plus Years of Transformative Fashion, is currently in session, and that just started a few weeks ago in January, and registration is now open for my class, um, which is going to be a series of classes called The Great Designers, and you can learn more about that on DressedHistory.com. So check it out.
1: Yes, yes, yes. We are so excited for what 2024 has in store. And that includes launching season seven with you all today with today's very special guest, the one, the only Dita Von Teese joins us all this week (laughs) (laughs) to chat about her love affair with vintage style, both on and off the stage. April, to say that Dita has shaped popular culture today is a bit of an understatement. I mean, most of our listeners will probably be familiar with her work as a burlesque performer, and she is rightfully lauded as one of the people responsible for reviving and modernizing the public's interest in the art of the striptease. Exactly.
0: Um, And the neo-burlesque scene, as we know and love it today, actually has its origins in the early 1990s. And Dita was right there, part of this very specific moment when kind of this rockabilly swing dancing scene was emerging. It was becoming very, very popular. And lots of people were having a bit of awakening about wearing vintage clothing. So we're going to talk more about this in this episode. But I just want to say that in so many ways, Dita's creative output of the 1990s and the early 2000s really helped shape the future of fashion so you know not only was she part of a subculture that embraced wearing vintage especially clothing from the 1940s and the 1950s she was also making really beautiful super classy erotica where she was the embodiment of the golden age of hollywood glamour And at the same time, the popularity of her work as a fetish model truly brought corsetry back into the mainstream imagination.
1: Yeah. And in so many ways, Dita's work has brought vintage style into popular visual culture. And in doing so, she inspired an entirely new generation of historical costumers and cosplayers to become sartorial time travelers themselves. Or maybe even burlesque
0: dancers. I'm actually only a couple years younger than Dita, and I started taking burlesque classes when I was in my 30s, and it was largely because of her work, and, and I found her work really magical because it's this blend of being entirely feminine and exceptionally powerful at the same time. So today, we get to cross off one of my bucket list dream guests with the amazing Dita Tees. Dita, thank you so much for being here. It goes without saying that Cass and I are both huge fans, and I have actually been following your career since the Andrew Blake days in the late 1990s. Dress listeners, if you know, you know, wink. Um. (laughs) Those are the olden days, right? Yeah. I was actually trying to remember, because I've seen you perform a few times, and I think the very first time I saw you perform, um, I think it was in South Beach, at like a party for Art Basel, Miami, and it might have been in like, even at the, the earliest one in 2002, I don't know. I could have the date wrong there. But it was supremely magical. It was the epitome of glamour.
2: um, And of course, your costumes, as always, were flawless. Was I riding a mechanical bull over (laughs) a stage put over a swimming pool? You were, actually. And was it at the Raleigh, perhaps? Um, I don't think it was the Raleigh, but it was like the hot hotel that is gone now, I think.
1: Yeah. So Dita, you are the walking embodiment of glamour in so many ways on and off the stage. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you wear mainly vintage or vintage inspired in your personal day to day life. And you are your own hair and makeup artist, which is incredible. So for your own photo shoots, stage performances, red carpet, which I feel like is just so rare for celebrities these days. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've always been
2: self styled. I'm a dishwater blonde from a farming town in Michigan. And I just kind of decided I wanted to emulate classic movie goddesses. And, you know, I thought, oh, I can, I can learn how to do that. So this is like pre-internet, pre-beauty tutorials and TikTok. So I kind of just had to like learn how to do it for myself. So I wrote, I wrote a big 400 page book about how I taught myself to do glam and of course like I've worked with my favorite makeup artists and hair people that I work with cuz like I can't do it all all the time like I'll do I'll do my makeup while somebody does my hair or I'll do my hair and somebody else do my makeup. It just depends c- because for my lingerie shoots, for instance, sometimes my favorites aren't available. So I'll do it myself or like I'm styling the shoot too. I'm managing the location. And so there's like a lot of things and every once in a while I'm like, it'd be great to have somebody else do my hair today. But also that somebody else is always these people or no people. You know, I'm very aware. So um, yeah, I just always believed in. DIY glam on every level and yeah, it's just part of who I am. I enjoy it. Well, you've raised
0: it to an art form. <laughs> just saying. Thank you.
1: But I also love too because that was standard practice for showgirls from like the 19th century, 20th century who are their own glam squads too, um but also their own wardrobe stylists, so in some ways you're carrying on that tradition. I'm a big audio book fan, and like I'm listening
2: to Barbara Streisand. She did all her own hair and makeup. She was also self styled. She did all her own makeup for Funny Girl. She wore a lot of wigs, obviously, so she didn't do those. So did Marlena Dietrich, famously. Like, so I, I just I've always been fascinated by that, and you know, I do believe that if you, you know have the desire to learn it you can learn your face and do your face better than as good as if not better than any world-class makeup artists and that's not a detriment to the i'm not trying to put down makeup artists i just don't think you have to be convinced that um
1: you can't learn
2: how to do yourself it's not always easy but you can <laughs>
1: And we're so excited to talk to you about your incredible burlesque career, of course, all those fabulous costumes. Um, But first, I kind of just want to go back a little bit. You mentioned being a Midwestern girl, and then I'm quoting your website here, the bio who transformed herself into a glamour girl like those she admired. So can you tell us a little bit about who inspired you growing up? Maybe how you knew you wanted to become a performer in the first place? I was always inspired by
2: like movie stars. My very favorite was Betty Grable because I love that era, that 1940s Technicolor musical. And Carmen Miranda was in a lot of those movies too, but that era of film was like, and still is my favorite aesthetically and as far as the fashion in it. So, yeah, I just. I love that. I was like completely obsessed with that. So Betty Grable was one of my favorites because I liked her because she was the pinup girl, song and dance girl, was in these frothy, beautiful Technicolor films. And so, you know, she was definitely a favorite. Even though I'm not blonde, I'm not like trying to emulate Betty Grable. To me, it was about capturing the spirit of those that I admire instead of actually trying to become those people. I don't think I ever had this, oh, I'm going to be a performer thing ever. Um, In fact, it took a long time before I was like, oh, I think this might be a legit career at this point, you know, 20 years later or whatever, you know. So (laughs) I kind of started in 1990. I came out of high school. I was go-go dancing in the LA rave scene and hanging out with the club kids and drag queens. and, And then I was pretty Well known in the pinup and fetish world as being like the modern Betty Page, like recreating vintage uh, bondage photos, but always style vintage and performing my first burlesque shows in the early 90s. And it was like very much like just something I did for fun while keeping another job. I worked in a lingerie store and then I worked in the beauty department at a department store. Uh, so I had all these other jobs and it wasn't really, I think, until... I, uh, it was just like one thing led to another. I was headlining strip clubs like the gentlemen's clubs because I was doing burlesque shows and I was famous for being in these, you know, pinup magazines and kind of a lot of slow evolution. And I don't think it was really until... I'd say like around 2002, I got a lot of mainstream jobs, like performing for fashion brands in Paris. And, you know, I had a big moment where everything kind of shifted and people knew me in the mainstream world. So, but yeah, that was like, it was a long time coming. It was like an oh, no, overnight thing. And I don't think I ever came to terms with being a performer for a long time. Cause I was just like, oh, I'm just like, you know, doing this pinup thing and this burlesque thing. And I was like a workhorse kind of <laughs> to say, like, I was just, <laughs> I'm just going to go, I have this job that job. I had all these jobs. I had the first pinup girl website ever on the internet. So I used to sell my little signed photos that you could get by check in the mail, you know, just all of these like businesses were I was always like just doing these different things for fun. And then I think, you know, I got an agent, had a manager, all that kind of stuff like in the early 2000s. And it became a little bit more like, oh, I guess this is really... I'm really doing this. This is my job. And your business model still is having your hands on a
0: lot of pots. Um, before Cass and I were going to interview you, we're like, she's a badass businesswoman. You have developed all these other avenues, which we are going to ask you <laughs> about right. here in a second, I think. But can we first talk about your personal collection of vintage? You have a phenomenal collection That's how we kind of first connected with you over Instagram. Most recently, we had a little back and forth about an episode that we had done on Lily Ann, because you were like, oh, I have that exact same piece that you guys just posted on Instagram. So we would love to hear about your collection and how you've gone about building it, if there was ever any strategy to that at all. And also if you have any favorite or particularly special pieces that you would like to share with our listeners.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I've been a collector of vintage clothes, I don't know, since like the late 80s, early 90s. And it really first started because I couldn't afford the designer jeans and things that my friends had. So it started there and I was always trying to get like the Vivian Westwood or the Jean-Paul Gaultier look, you know, with vintage, like corsets, bullet bras, like 40s suits. Uh, So yeah, I just and I, I also grew up my mom liked to watch movies, classic cinema from the 30s, 40s, 50s. So I was that. It had an imprint on me early on. So I just thought I, I grew up thinking, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to wear red lipstick and wear fancy clothes like those ladies. Like it didn't occur to me that it was not something people normally did. So, yeah, I just fell in love with vintage for those reasons. Yeah. I mean, I think in the 90s, it was so easy. Like especially being in the Midwest. Just yeah. saying. I still have dreams about my first strip club tour. I drove out to Texas and I was in like Wichita Falls or something in Texas. And every time I would get to a city, I'd open up the yellow uh, the, the yellow pages and be like, where's the antique stores? Where's the vintage stores? And I'd go and I, there was this place I still like have dreams about. It. it was so amazing. But it was like a Victorian old house. And it was these two ladies. One, They were mother and daughter and they were like 70 and 90. <laughs> and every room was filled with vintage and just cheap perfect vintage, the whole room of like men's stuff and just it was amazing. And I would go I went back there like every day and I'd take my like strip club money and go like just pack my suitcases full of vintage. And so it kind of started like that. Or like, also, I remember when you could look on when eBay came around, and you could look at everything on eBay in like an hour. And so I got a lot like great things on eBay early on and, you know, shopping flea markets and vintage expos and getting super stoked about a, you know, wearing a $10 dress on the red carpet years (laughs) later, you know, I just feel like, you know, what I, I, I shopped vintage cause I couldn't afford designer stuff. Um, and I didn't really like, you know, new stuff I wanted it to look like I was in a movie and there was a period in my life I like in around 94 to 96 that I was fully dressing in 40s down to the underwear the authentic stockings, the girdle, the hat, the gloves, driving my 1939 Chrysler just like fully in it, you know, in the swing dance scene. I just always loved that. I loved collecting. I love how like it felt special to wear something different than what everyone else was wearing and of course when you dress like that in every Everyday life, you get people that are like, Are you in a movie or something? And I'd be like, Yeah, I'm starring in the movie of my life. It's awesome. <laughs> people would make fun of me for sure. But I was very just having fun, you know. And also I realized the power of collecting vintage early. Like, okay, you can go to the mall and buy a bunch of junk, or you can buy vintage and then you can resell it if you decide it's not for you, or if you're tired of it, or if you know, whatever. So yeah, I have I have like uh, two storage units both of uh, vintage and then I have some people know because they have seen tours of my house but I have two of my bedrooms I like, converted to my closets and I kind of like move things in and out seasonally and favorite pieces I mean it's hard I have the pieces that are sentimental you know things I have things that I've had since I was 19 years old that are like I'll never part with or things that were just such a score I have a big hat collection like a room that's most my second room is mostly hats because I love doll tilt hats from the 40s perch hats there's so many different names for them but I have a, I've been collecting those since the 90s and so I've pretty spectacular ones that have been, uh of like the VNA museum but yeah it's hard to it's hard to wear some of the things that I love it's hard to wear them in real life but I am glad I have, you know, I can do a book signing and wear the most outlandish thing I want because I'm oh like, well, I'm Dita this it's just, you know,
0: <laughs> I can. It's go- what people expect <laughs> from you.
2: I don't go out to dinner too often dressed in head-to-toe vintage because I can be a little shy for that these days. But I'm a little like, I don't think I should wear my Dita Bontese costume over there today <laughs> if I want to just, you know, pick up a t-shirt to go with one of my uh, Julie Lynn Charlo skirts. Yes. Yes, yes, the inventor of the poodle skirt. I love her skirts, and in fact, we interviewed her recently. We found <gasps> you her. You found her. Uh, I had a few leads, and we found her. She was living in Mexico City, and we interviewed her for my upcoming book, which is "Fashioning the Faux Total." And we interviewed her, and she was t- she talked for like three hours she was so excited to talk yeah we found her because you know she made like during the election i don't know if you had seen this she made this skirt and put it out there oh i didn't know you know she did did some political skirts but then she did something for one of the elections five years ago or something i don't know and we had a lead on finding her so but uh we haven't been able to get in touch with her since so i hope all is okay but she has some amazing stories but yeah she, i i for something about felt craft i've always loved whether it's on a cardigan sweater or on a skirt and i collect her skirts of course but and i and i only actually recently got one of the actual poodles because i was more into the other all the other themed skirts but uh yeah i just i love wearing those with like a modern sweater or t-shirt or something and i don't know what it is about them that makes me obsessed with with felt craft you know all kinds of felt crop,
1: And that's one of those like, the poodle skirt is one of those iconic fashion moments in history that can actually, and this doesn't always happen in fashion history, but that can be traced to one person, which is so incredible. And I guess she's probably about 100 years old now, We've already
0: done a, a fashion history mystery episode that a listener had submitted asking us to do a history of the poodle skirt. So we've actually already done an episode on her. And also, Dita, you are wearing cat eye glasses right now. We've actually also done an episode on Altina. Who is the originator of those who originally I had the hardest time when we were researching this episode? Because I couldn't find anything on cat eyes. Like, even in the vintage magazines, they weren't called cat eyes at that time. They were called harlequin glasses. So, harlequin glasses.
2: I would not have
0: guessed that. Hmm. Yeah, she's another fascinating character. A little bit of a handful. Her dad was some wealthy cigarette manufacturer, and then she led this wild, artistic, avant-garde life, and
2: just happened to be the the creator of cat-eye glasses as well. (laughs) Interesting. I'd like to get my hands on is the pre-poodle skirt. I like that dachshund skirt, the one that she first made that led her. I'm sure you know all the story, but that's one I would like. We will keep our eye out for it.
1: For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.
1: Do you have any stories about vintage that you, you know, any special moments about finding a piece that you'd been looking for or a piece that surprised you? One of my favorite stories is being in San Francisco
2: and I believe it was Relic Vintage. And I was in there and the owner, he was like, oh, I might have something you want to see that's in the back. It's kind of expensive, though. I was like, hit me with your best shot, right? and he brings it out and you've probably seen pictures of me wearing this it's a gray tweed three piece dior haute couture paris with the red stamps on it documented in books photos by Irving Pett, the whole thing and it's the all three pieces and it fits me perfectly and it's oh it's going to be expensive i think it was like $4000 and i was like <laughs> i mean it's a lot $4000 is a lot of money but this is the kind of piece that somebody would pay 30 thousand dollars for easy this this whole piece it has the garners that are attached to the blouse there were a lot of dior pieces running you know, around it was licensed a lot but this is the real thing under the mystery Dior dior has night when autumn winter 1954 it's amazing and so that's like my big score so much so actually somebody wrote me later that i think i worked in the store too and like found my email and bitched me out about buying it because she was saving for it. And I was like, oh, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. It was was like, wow, vintage eight mail. It's very serious business.
1: (laughs) But it's also that interesting study too, in that uh, not maybe not necessarily this person who emailed you, but not everything can go into museum, right? And so for you to get find this piece and to be able to wear it and give it a second life is amazing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, what? like it could end up in a museum as like, you know, mine. And I, can, I love I've lent a lot of things to museums. Like I have Betty Page's most famous high-heeled shoes that she wore and all the Irving Claw pictures. So like I've lent those to uh, the V&A and like, you know, I, I I love displaying my things and showing them to people and sharing with people, you know, for sure. Yeah, could I gift it to a museum? Like sure, but I'm not gifting it. Yeah, I'm wearing it still every other winter, you know, I take it out and like wear it and I just it's, it's amazing. I and it, of course the story that goes with it, it's amazing and you know, it'll go it'll go somewhere hopefully when I'm not around anymore from my cold dead hands. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's amazing too the fact that that was an haute couture piece and it fits you because all those haute couture pieces were made specifically made to measure for the individual client so that's amazing
2: it's perfect it has like a built-in leather belt and it would couldn't have been altered you know if it didn't fit like a glove it couldn't have been altered either.
0: yeah those DR pieces from that time period it, there's a lot of internal structure to them which leads me to my next question for you one do you collect vintage corsets? And we would love to hear more about both your personal and also your professional relationship to corsetry because we talk about wearing corsets on the show throughout fashion history. We talk about it on the show all the time. But you are, of course, inarguably one of the most famous practitioners today, and you have been for decades. And not only do you wear them, but you've also practiced tight lacing, and that's also especially fascinating to us.
2: Yeah. Um, well, let's see. My love of the corset came from, I was working in a lingerie store and again, posing for pinups. And I was very in deep with finding vintage lingerie, but the corset was elusive. And I saw somebody, I was out like at a rave party and there's a girl and she was wearing a corset. I was like, where did you get that? And she gave me a piece of paper with the name of a store and an address. And I went there and it was like, a fet- it was a fetish store. And they made them custom there, and that kind of like sparked my interest in in corsets. And I started working for that company, and I just like, you know, I made those corsets the base of all of my striptease costumes. Which, you know, the corset was not a burlesque wardrobe staple like it is now. It's that was definitely comes, you know, the popularity of that comes from me just wearing them and building outfits around them. And just, it would have been a burlesque star's grandmother's underwear. She wouldn't have worn it in a burlesque house. Any documentation you have of any burlesque costuming and books and stuff, you'll never find anything like that in there. That's just me being obsessed with this, this elusive, uh, controversial piece of clothing, right? Like it's restrictive, you know, tight lacing was a controversy, even you know, in its time. So, you know, and I was like a fetish model. So it was all part of my world of creating this like burlesque fetish persona and and strip teasing from complicated costumes. But I have a few vintage corsets, maybe a dozen of them, um, and then hundreds of modern ones. And I think the thing is, so Mr. Pearl is, you know, without question, the most important corset designer, modern corset designer of all time, I would say, like, you know, in the last 40 years, right? Anything you saw on the runway that was McQueen, Jean-Paul Gaultier, like the most, the most complicated feats in corsetry are all achieved by him. Even if you don't know it, like Christian Lacroix, like they all know him. Vivian Westwood, you, you could ask any of them. Uh, And they would say, there's no one alive that can do what he does. It's true corsetry at the haute couture level that is unmatched you know, that's not to diminish other corset makers. I have a few others, but this is the highest level. And he learned about making corsets from this woman who was a, who passed away rec- fairly recently. Um, she was an off the grid, high, high level dominatrix, the highest order They used to dress in full Victorian with diamond necklaces. And she had the most important corsets all of the ones that the courtesans wore, that he has the Ethel Granger corsets, this incredible collection um, in her possession. And that's how Pearl learned how to make corsets. It's like studying those with her. And so I was, when I was on tour last year, I was in uh, Edinburgh where, where Pearl is now. And he shared with me that he inherited this collection from her. And he brought this, suitcase to dinner at a a friend's house and I was just amazed like it's got all these incredible rare unseen photos of Ethel Granger and all of her super cool friends you know (laughs) like it really that's a whole nother story but I was sending pictures of them in, to uh, Jean-Paul and he's like, oh my God, incredible corsets. Cause like, that's where you, the courtesans and the fetishists were where you really have the crazy colors and flossing and little messages in the, the embroidery and the, and then the tight lacing with these just extra, extravagant shades. So I'm not a big collector of vintage corsets, to be honest. I honestly like love working with Mr. Pearl and making, you know, I forgot to say, you know, all the Mugler corsets. He did those, you know, like all those pigeon breasted. Like he's the mastermind. It's like, oh, how do I make a pigeon breasted corset exaggerated from Mugler? Genius. Okay, so instead of putting my money into vintage corsets, I would rather I commission him for things that are really special. That are, frankly, beyond the antique corset world. And the things he does are they just they just go beyond that they're they're into the fashion realm and they're all things that will that are currently in museums like one of mine it just actually just came back from the Kensington Palace Museum one of his things and you know he only can make two things a year uh you know he would take on like two things per year for Gautier, for instance and and maybe something for me he was working on Bridgerton for a while I know that too
1: yeah he's been on our list of like dream guests And you led me straight to my next question, which was about Mr. Pearl, because I was reading an interview with you where you talked about how he put you through the proper training for waist cinching. So not only is he building your corsets, but he's also directing you on how to to wear them and how to tight lace. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Or would you like to? There's a whole bunch of people
2: that are into tight lacing. And I honestly have never been that way. I just... I have a pliable waist. I love corsetry. I know how to have them fit and cut the way I like it with my ribs left unsecured. Because, you know, there's different shapes people like, like a conical shape. There's different shapes. And I have a very, like, I like to have my ribs in this hourglass shape and not this. Uh, and But I've never been like, I'm going to have the smallest waist. I've never cared about that. I have, you know, certainly been measured at my smallest when I was on the cover of Playboy, or, like, these moments, but I don't really, I don't do that. Although, I have, what I have to say is that what Mr. Pearl would do when I was wearing the butterfly corset, for instance, or the skeleton corset that he did for Jean-Paul, he once put a little note, handwritten in cursive, beautifully written, of course, that said, upon waking, you can have a half of an apple. An hour before the show, you have the other half. Just in how, coaching me on how to, like, Get in, you know? Listen, did I probably have a bunch of coffee and, and have a croissant? I probably did, you know? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. um, I've never been that serious about it because I don't really care about the numbers. I did, of course, want to fit into that and do right by him and for the runway for, of that. Um, and I, the last time I wore the butterfly corset, I was like, I'm not doing that. That was
1: the last time. It's a commitment for sure. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I've already done it. And I don't like, again, I don't care about the number or like, I don't care if I have the smallest waist. I'm not trying to promote that people, tight lace or anything like that. For me, it's just, it's an article of clothing that I really love. It's not about a race to have the smallest waist, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So Mr. Pearl is but one of your very famous frequent collaborators, especially when it comes to your stage costumes. Who are some of the other designers that you've worked with over the years? And I'm curious if there are special considerations that go into designing your burlesque wardrobe in particular. What makes a Dita costume a Dita costume?
2: Well, that corset base is one of those like hallmarks of what I love again, not coming from burlesque history costuming because I've always liked to have my, you know, my own Distinctive looks. But, uh, you know, number one for bur- if we're talking about burlesque costuming, it's Catherine Delish. You know, a lot of people know her for making these extravagant marabou and feather trimmed robes. Those, like, what I'll be wearing when my husband dies in mysterious circumstances robe. <laughs> but, like, in my right hand in creating stripscapes and in making my most extravagant costumes, all of the like head to toe, big. Fancy cut Swarovski crystal costumes, those are all her. And I've worked with other fashion designers like Jenny Packham has made quite a few costumes for me that are like more on the bugle beaded, that side of things instead of the prong sat crystal. And then like Alexi Mabil, who's a Parisian couturier made something for my Vegas show. I worked with Elie Saab on a few costumes, which I was kind of like, oh, wow. He got it exactly right on the first try. I was so amazed and also shocked when I said, can I have a little piece of this fabric so that I can make a G string? And they looked at me and like shook their heads and their white coats and their, like their glasses and we trance. Like then they come back with two sandwich bags one has the beads and one has the tool and i was like oh (laughs) this was and this is like a long gap embroidered with beautiful like stars so straight up every tiny bead you know i I didn't comprehend it i was just like oh it must have come from a beautiful bolt of fabric all hand beaded for you yep um so that was an amazing experience working with him uh I worked with Zuhair Murad on something as well. And Louboutin, of course, has made all the shoes for my shows for like 20, 22 years since we met. And so that's always like a whole different level of collaboration. He puts me through my paces literally
1: with not sensible footwear. And there's a specially made Dita heel, right, from Louboutin? Yeah,
2: we build out like they build out the heel so that
1: it can curve
2: in even more. It's like a real super curvy heel. He and I get together and I show him the sketches, show him the handful of crystal that's going on in the costume, and he just comes up with some outlandish things. Sometimes we, he'll make two pairs. Here's the one when you're feeling really brave, and here's the one when you're on shaky ground. <laughs> so, <laughs> And what
0: would the difference between those be? Would it be the cantilever or the comfort level or?
2: Uh, yeah, usually the heel height. I like a little like interior hidden platform that's usually an inch. Uh, but sometimes it, the heel will be higher. He did a pair of shoes one time that were just, they were held on just by like a little crystal ball between my two toes. And I was like, I need a more significant shoe because the costume is trailing. So crystal weighing, in you know, like, I don't know, like 40 pounds or something. So we've had to make, you know, different shoes according to things that you don't anticipate like the weight of the costume
0: yeah and I think a lot of people don't really think about so w- when you're um, doing some of those elaborate burlesque numbers
2: you have on four or five different layers of clothing it gets heavy yeah I mean you know don't it's it's <laughs> and you <laughs> it's make just, it look so easy <laughs> never is but it's fun. I mean, me and Catherine, when we do costumes together, we've always had true obsession with Swarovski crystal. Like we won't use any imitators. It's hundred percent Swarovski all the time. And we're like, how can we put more crystal on the costume? <laughs> There's there'll be like a dozen pieces, okay. Like if I really sit here and count and I'm like, okay, I got the jacket, the necklace, four braces, four braces, two gloves, three pairs of underwear, the corset, the bra, <laughs> that you know, the skirt. We try to pile on as much as possible just to push the limits of what people have ever seen before. And it, and she's like the mastermind behind all of that stuff. I mean, some of her costumes are the things that Jean-Paul is like, I need to come backstage and see that costume, you know, <laughs> stuff, you know. Uh, and it doesn't look like it doesn't look, you know, people forget it's like wearing a ch- chandelier, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun it's like fun to make people go oh my eyes hurt it's so spark.
1: <laughs> in many ways that's what people pay for to come see right is that yeah. show you know that spectacular extravaganza I'm not an amazing
2: dancer doing high kicks and back flips so they're not coming to see me do that and even if I couldn't do that I think I would choose the rhinestones <laughs> I like that choice a lot <laughs> things can look ridiculous if, if you dance a lot like sometimes you just gotta like take it all in and let people have a good look and so you know sometimes people try to insult me by saying like she doesn't really she's not really dance like so and so and i'm like i don't want to dance like so and so like i don't know even when i even as someone who loves sid Charisse it's like my favorite moments of hers are like the in-betweens it's the holding face the little things the little tiny gestures that are so effective
1: Dita fans, dress listeners, we cut here with part one of our two-part episode with the inimitable Miss Von Teese, but we'll be back with part two on Thursday. And in our next episode, we are going to chat about her current residency in Vegas and some of the amazing showgirl costumes she resurrected out of the archives of one of Vegas's most iconic stage shows ever, Jubilee. We will also chat about Dita's guest starring role at Crazy Horse,
0: which um, any of our past travelers who have been on one of our Paris trips will already know that I'm obsessed with Crazy Horse. It's a Parisian cabaret. It's an institution. Um, And to get to hear the backstage tea from Dita was so, so cool. So, (laughs) you know, Paris, dressing to get undressed. These are just a few of my favorite things. Until Thursday, dress listeners, may you consider the art of undressing for your partner, or maybe even more importantly, yourself, next time you get dressed.
1: As always, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. Or you can DM us at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And you can actually find this episode under the hashtag dress 339. If you're listening to this episode in the future and want to quickly find images, um, we do a hashtag associated with our episode. So you can check that out. You can find both of Dita's books on our dress bookshelf by way of the link in our show notes, or you can head over to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dress. And you can find a link to that in our show notes as well.
0: And you can always be assured that when you make a purchase from our Dressed bookshelf, you are buying from an independent bookseller. We have worked with bookshop.org to partner us with sellers who are not Mr. Bezos. Also, Dress Listeners, we did make passing mention of two past Dressed episodes, um, one on the history of the poodle skirt and its creator, Julianne Charlotte, and also our episode on the history of cat eye glasses and their creator, Altina Shanazi. And um, just to be cute and clever, we actually re-aired those last week. So if you haven't heard those already, they're
1: right next to uh, this episode in your feed. So check those out as well. Yeah, and also, just if you want to continue learning about The Showgirl, we have done a two-part episode on the history of fashion and The Showgirl. So, check that out as well. So, friends, Dress the School of Fashion is now open for those of you with stylish minds who would like to take classes with us. I've already started What Women Wore to the Revolution, 100-plus years of transformative fashion. We're having so much fun just sharing it with you. You all are taking notes. You all are in conversation with one another. We're having such a blast. And if you want to head over to dress you can sign up for April's upcoming class, the great designer series, which is going to launch in April, 2024. It's now open for registration again, for more information on our online classes, head over to dress and click on the classes button at the top of the page, or you can head to the link in our show notes.
0: And thank you as always for tuning in and more Dita coming your way on Thursday. Dressed. The History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.